Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Sabbath School. And we're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. And we have gotten through the first 10 chapters. And that means we're going to be starting Hebrews 11 today. Now, hopefully if you've been coming to the Hebrews class throughout this quarter, you will have a glimpse or an idea of what the author of Hebrews, who is Paul, is trying to convey to his readers. Now, if you ask people today generally, what's the book of Hebrews about, what would people say? Faith. They'd say it's about faith. Well, sure, that's good, but um, as you've seen from the study of our first 10 chapters of Hebrews, um, we see that it's a lot more about a lot more than just the concept of faith, as important as that concept is. And the question is then, what is Hebrews 11 as a chapter, which is all about the faith of those from the past, what is that doing towards the end of the book of Hebrews? Why does Paul decide to suddenly give a whole chapter of examples of people who lived by faith? And just by a matter of brief review, what is Hebrews, what, what have we seen as we've gone through the book of Hebrews? We've seen that Jesus is God in chapter 1. We see that he's also man in chapter 2. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, we see that because he was God and because he is man, that qualifies him to be our high priest. And then we see that God, at the end of chapter 4, God wants us to enter into experience of rest with him, which is an experience all week long, and we need to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive help from Jesus, our high priest, to have that experience. And then, we've, then we see a few other concepts in chapter 5 and 6. Chapter 7, Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 8, we see that Jesus as the high priest is going to write his law into our hearts and minds. And in chapter 9, he's going to come back for a group of people who have that new covenant experience. And in chapter 10, there's a little bit more about that. And so the reader may be left wondering, well, because you look at Hebrews chapter 3 and you see the children of Israel who had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and they had Moses, the greatest leader the world has ever known besides Christ, leading them through the wilderness, and yet the record in the Bible in chapter 3 of Hebrews says they did not enter into an experience with God's rest, meaning they were lost. And it's like, man, um, those people heard God's law spoken from Mount Sinai, and, um, you know, I'm never going to hear God's voice literally probably the way they did, so what hope do I have? And so after going through all that and seeing the high calling that God has for us, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this is how to be on the right side of you know, the equation at the end of the day when God wants to write his law into your hearts and minds. Faith is the key. And so 
that's why Hebrews 11 is where it is. And a lot of times people go straight to Hebrews 11, and that's fine. You can get a great blessing by just studying Hebrews 11 alone. But it's nice to know where it fits in the book of Hebrews when you're studying the book of Hebrews. Is it just a random chapter? No, obviously it fits a bigger theme. And we're going to see some interesting points about faith right off the bat. So Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1, says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we all know this verse. I've heard this since I was probably five years old. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So it's something that you're hoping for, and it's based on evidence of things that you don't see. Now, faith would not be faith if you saw what you had faith in. You know what I mean? I mean, it's true that the disciples saw Jesus literally for three and a half years, but they still had to have faith in his word that he would come back a second time after he left. They didn't see that. It was something they believed, something that they hoped for, but they didn't have it in their hand, so to speak. And um, so faith, for example, righteousness by faith, it's something that we believe that we have, but we only can believe that we have it because God says so. Um, it's not something that we can prove in and of ourselves. God says so, and we believe that. And of course, you will see a change in someone's life who has that experience. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not, things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. And we're going to see how they obtained a good report in the remainder of this chapter. Now, verse 3 becomes very interesting. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this concept coming from verse 3. Verse 3 is a study all in itself. So verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now that's, you know, I don't even know where to start on this one. Um, a comment here. One of the things that tells us is, is that faith is a vehicle. Mm -hmm. It's the medium by which through the righteousness of Christ, men see themselves as they really are. Right. It places God in position for us in our thinking, in our minds, uh -huh. so that we are no longer the people we thought we were. Right, right. In other words, it lays our glory in the dust. Right. And that's what it just said here. Sure. Because these things that we're not seeing, he, he made this world out of nothing. Right. Uh, we take this world all apart and try to prove how right we are. Right. If this is an open right. And we're going to talk about that here. Right. So what we see, and that's a very good point, what we see is, look, the worlds were framed how? By the word of God. Through faith we understand that. Now, none of us were here to see the worlds framed by the word of God. None of us were here before creation to see what was around before God spoke things into existence. So it's through faith that we understand this. Um, and, you know, I've, I've gone through 
I was a biochemistry major in college. I'm a neurologist now, so I speak respectfully of science. But notice he doesn't say, through science we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. He doesn't say that. He says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So, and then as he goes on, he says, so that things which are seen, that's the things here on this earth that were created, were not made of things which do appear. So God didn't say, okay, here's some amorphous substance, and I'm just going to kind of speak my word and change this amorphous substance into something more beautiful. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That means God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. And that shows you how powerful God is. And this is, this is the starting point of faith. Look, God made this world from nothing by his word. And again, it's through faith we understand this. So it's through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, not by science, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, faith and creation are inseparably linked. How do I know that? When you go to Romans chapter 4, verse 3, for example, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For what saith the Scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And we've studied this in a Romans class on our Wednesday night um, series that has concluded, but we went through this, and Abraham, whatever he believed, caused him to be counted as righteous. That's called righteousness by faith. Abraham's belief was a demonstration of faith which caused God to count him as righteous. Pretty straightforward, right? Abraham's belief caused God to count him as righteous. That's very straightforward. But what did Abraham believe? And this is being cited from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Paul is assuming that the reader of Romans already knows what Abraham believed. <clears throat> and what what we'll do is we'll start in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 15 and the, of course the story is God tells Abraham you'll have a child and then Abraham in chapter 15 says well hey this servant in my house Eliezer he can be the heir because I'm childless and God says in verse 4 and behold the word of the Lord came unto him Abraham saying this shall not be thine heir but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir and Abraham's thinking well <laughs> yeah God but I'm past childbearing age so Sarah, this isn't going to happen. But then God says in verse 5, And he, God, brought him, Abraham, forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse 6, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. S same concept as Romans 4, verse 3. What did Abraham believe? God took him out and showed him the stars and said, so shall your seed be. And that made Abraham realize, oh yeah, God is creator. 
by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. His word spoke those heavenly bodies into existence. So if he wants to create a child with me and Sarah, even though we're past childbearing age, if he's the creator, I believe that he can do that with us. And God says, you're righteous. Now, what's the key point then? The point is this. We can only believe that God is creator through faith. Hebrews 11 makes that abundantly clear. Now, Abraham at some point saw Isaac born, and that was um, hard evidence, so to speak, of God's promise. But I would, and all of us have had experiences where God has done things in our lives that we can say was divine intervention, I'm sure. But when it comes to the creation of this world, that's only something that we can understand through faith. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, and what we see in Genesis chapter 15, is that if we're going to have faith in God's word, we have to believe that God is creator. Now, why do I say that? Because the same word of God that is in our hands in this book is the same word that God used to create the world. And it's the same word that can recreate a new life in our hearts. That's why Abraham and Sarah having a new birth when they were dead physically is a spiritual analogy to the new birth experience that comes with righteousness by faith. Our lives are dead in trespasses and sins, but then we believe in God the same way Abraham did, the creator God, that he can recreate a new life in our hearts and then we are raised up to walk in newness of life. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Now, if we don't believe that God can create through his word the way he says, then chances are we really won't have the understanding or the faith to believe that he can create a new life. And in fact, it's not even a chance. We won't believe. Um, we won't believe that God can create a new life in us. Now, since we're on the topic of creation, <clears throat> I'm going to read a passage from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, and this is from the chapter entitled The Literal Week. It's chapter 9 of Patriarchs and Prophets, entitled The Literal Week, and <clears throat> this is interesting. The very first paragraph, Ellen White says, like the Sabbath, the week originated at creation and it has been preserved and brought down to us through Bible history. God himself measured off the first week as a sample for successive weeks to the close of time. Like every other, it consisted of seven literal days. So that's Ellen White's definition of creation. Six days were employed in the work of creation. Upon the seventh, God rested, and he then blessed this day and set it apart as a day of rest for man. And you may be saying, well, but what about um, the scientific record that shows that the earth is a lot older? Well, she has a comment for this as well on page 112 of the same chapter. 
Geologists claim to find evidence from the earth itself that it is very much older than the mosaic record teaches. Bones of men and animals, as well as instruments of warfare, petrified trees, etc., much larger than any that now exist or that have existed for thousands of years, have been discovered, and from this it is inferred that the earth was populated long before the time brought to view in the record of creation, and by a race of beings vastly superior in size to any men now living. Such reasoning has led many professed Bible believers to adopt the position that the days of creation were vast, indefinite periods. Have you ever heard that argument? Notice what she goes on to say. But apart from Bible history, geology can prove nothing. Those who reason so confidently upon its discoveries have no adequate conception of the size of men, animals, and trees before the flood or of the great changes which then took place. Relics found on the earth do give evidence of conditions differing in many respects from the present, but the time when these conditions existed can be learned only from the inspired record. In the history of the flood, inspiration has explained that which geology alone could never fathom. In the days of Noah, men, animals, and trees many times larger than now exist were buried and thus preserved as an evidence to later generations that the antediluvians perished by a flood. God designed that the discovery of these things should establish faith in an inspired history, but men with their vain reasoning with their vain reasoning, fall into the same error as did the people before the flood. The things which God gave them as a benefit, they turn into a curse by making a wrong use of them. So notice this, you can go and do carbon-13 dating or fossil records and this, that, and the other, and use a scientific method to come up with the, the length of time from when those substances existed, but notice what the inspired record says, look, before the flood everything was different. It's like comparing apples to oranges. You can't date something from before the flood to the laws of, of nature after the flood. Things have changed and deteriorated. It's just different. And yet modern science thinks they've figured out the origin of this world. And the truth of the matter is, and we're not going to spend too much time on this, but I'm just mentioning this in passing. Modern science leaves more questions about origins than it gives answers. And if you just stick with what the Bible says about the origin of this earth, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It's pretty straightforward. And when you understand that, then you understand that, look, Hebrews 11, of course, is one of the most fam famous chapters in the Bible that defines faith. And one of the first things that Paul does in this chapter is to say, look, faith is understanding that the world was created by the word of God out of nothing. That's faith. And that's sort of a starting point. So, look, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We didn't see creation, but we believe, we understand. We have faith in God's word. And look, if we don't believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then how can we trust any of the rest of God's word? We'll say, well, the first 11 chapters of Genesis don't add up, but the rest of the word of God is okay. The only problem is, is that the New Testament authors made reference to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and even Jesus referred to the flood of Noah 
and Jesus is our savior and he's God and he's saying that the flood happened, but we're saying, well, but the flood didn't really happen. So then we're making Jesus a liar. So who, who's a liar here, Jesus or us? So that's, those are the difficulties that we come into when we start questioning the biblical record. Now, <clears throat> this is what you might call breaking news in Adventism. Um, but I wanted to um, read to you a letter from our world church president, Jan Paulson, that he just wrote yesterday on June 19. So this is from the world leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Jan Paulson. Um, he says, I place this before you in awareness of an ongoing discussion in some quarters between faith and science, particularly as it relates to origins and creation. For us as a community, it has always been of utmost importance to stay close to the scripture. Faith has that as its final point of reference. We must not allow ourselves to come adrift from the Bible in defining our values and in stating what we hold. Our, can you fix this? I don't know. Excuse, sorry about this. <clears throat> our position as a church in the matter of origins is clearly, although somewhat broadly stated in our fundamental beliefs, this position is further amplified in a statement voted by the General Conference Executive Committee at the 2004 Annual Council. To remind ourselves of the details of that action, I have included the wording in this appeal. And I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to hit some of the high points. And so he is going to this statement to reaffirm what the church believes. So number one, we strongly endorse the document's affirmation of our historic biblical position of belief in a literal recent six-day creation. And then he says, we reaffirm the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the historicity of Genesis 1 to 11, that the seven days of the creation account were literal 24-hour days forming a week identical in time to what we now experience as a week, and that the flood was global in nature. We call on all boards and ed educators at Seventh-day Adventist institutions at all levels to continue upholding and advocating the church's position on origins. Um, and then he, he comes back and says a few things. He says, um, I appeal to all engaged by our church in the ministries of administration preaching, teaching, and writing to articulate and reflect our stand as a community on creation. We are a faith community, and the world of faith is the world in which God's creative powers are on constant display. Sometimes the findings of science may reflect some of this, but often not. And notice what he says here. Faith is certainly not subject to findings of science. So he goes on to say, um, he says, he, and he's speaking to our educators and our institutions, as your pastor, I appeal to you that when you take your students out on the journey of evolution versus, crea evolution versus creation, you bring them safely back home before the day is over, and their home must always be in the world of faith. You owe it to, you owe it to the students, you owe it to God, you owe it to their parents, you owe it to the church, and you owe it to yourself as a believer to safely guide them through difficult moments on their journey. So he goes, and that's basically the substance of the letter. So, you know, in recent times there have been some... <clears throat> 
controversy that has come up, and unfortunately, um, in some of our institutions, it seems that creation has not been upheld. And it's nice to see that the world leader of, of the Adventist Church is reaffirming strongly the, um, the firmly held belief of creation, the literal six-day week and the seventh day of rest. And obviously that's important because it all comes back to faith. And if we don't have faith, if we don't believe in God as creator, just like as Abraham our father, the father of the faith, was counted as righteous, if we don't believe in God as creator, we're not going to be counted righteous. And that's in getting into the whole issue of righteousness by faith. And if we don't have righteousness by faith, we don't have salvation. So you can't say that creation is an academic argument where some can believe one thing and some can believe another thing. According to the Bible, in order to be counted righteous by God, the only way to experience his righteousness is to believe in him as creator. And that's the beginning point of faith. So we want to uphold our biblical understanding of faith and of God as creator. So we spent a little bit of time on verse 3, but that's okay. I wanted to make sure that we articulated um, that point. So now after we've gone through the first three verses, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We can see certainly how that applies to creation and how it applies is that the things which are seen here on this earth which were not made of things which do appear. That takes faith because the human mind can't grasp substance being created out of nothing. I mean, you can't create that in a scientific lab. There's just no way. Um, so that takes faith. And the good news is, is God can take our life, which may be dead in trespasses and sins, and recreate a new life in us. So verse 4, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So... Cain and Abel. And you know, we, you could do a, an entire sermon on every story in Hebrews 11. Um, so we don't have time to do that, and we're not going to get through all of 11 today anyway. But the basic point is this. What was the difference between Cain and Abel? Abel offered to God a sacrifice that God asked him to give. Cain brought a sacrifice to God that he felt like bringing, even though God had asked him to bring something else. Now, what Abel brought actually required more of a sacrifice because it required him to sacrifice the best of his flock. And as a shepherd, that had to be painful. <clears throat> but that's what God asked. What did Cain bring? He brought the best fruits from his garden. Now, if you think about that, how hard is it to bring the best of some fruits and vegetables that you've worked to cultivate compared to a live animal that you had to sacrifice? It's, it's very different. Sure. So, right. Sure. 
<clears throat> so what we see here is two um, streams of thought or of seed, so to speak, of how to worship God. And the one way is God asks us to worship him in spirit and truth, and this is how he asks us to worship him. In the time of Abel, it was to bring uh, an offering or a sacrifice of a lamb. And Cain said, well, no, I'm, I'm going to bring the, br the best fruit that I myself have cultivated. And there is an element certainly here where God says that Abraham, I mean, sorry, Abel obtained witness that he was righteous. Again, it's somewhat arbitrary for God to say bring a lamb as opposed to, to bring fruit. But by faith, Abel obeyed what God said to do. And yet Cain did things his own way. He was trying to gain favor with God by the fruit of his own works. And there's a number of other things that we can say here. Um, again, each of these can, could be an entire sermon, but um, Cain um, is a demonstration of worshiping God, but in a way that's not pleasing to him. And that is possible to do. It's not enough to just say that we're worshiping God. If we're not worshiping him the way that he's asked us to, then the way God feels, the way God reacted to Cain and Abel will be similar to us. Abel obtained the witness that he was righteous, and Cain certainly didn't have that witness from God, this comment. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So um, Cain was angry that Adam had been taken out of the garden, and so this was one of his ways to show that. And, you know, it's, um, you hear of stories of people who are angry at God because maybe some people in their family left the church, so now they have to change the way they worship God. So anyway, anger is never a motivation to worship God. So we can see here two di the differences of worship between Abel and Cain. Now as we go on in verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, <clears throat> Some of you may have been at Advent Hope maybe four or five years ago when Mark Finley preached a sermon, and so credit is given where it is due. Mark Finley makes an interesting point that as you go through Hebrews chapter 11, you'll have these contrasts of the experience of people who exercise faith. Abel exercised faith and he died. Enoch exercises faith and he's translated. 
the contrast. Noah exercises faith and he stays in the ark. Abraham exercises faith and he leaves the land of his birth. So you'll see that as you go down through. Some people escaped the mouth of lions and some people were sawn asunder. So when you exercise faith, it doesn't guarantee that God's going to take you down a certain safe path necessarily. It may be the opposite of your neighbor who's exercising the same faith and God works wonders for them. Wow. And then for you, wow, this is terrible. What, God, why are you It's this, the same. God is allowing you to pass through different experiences, but he's requiring the same type of faith. And so we just, we see that sometimes when we exercise the same type of faith, the end result on this earth may be different, but the, the end result ultimately will be the same. So Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and of course Enoch would then be a representation of God's last day people who are translated without seeing death. And if you read the story of Enoch, Enoch was a man who lived in the world but was not of the world. Um, he wasn't um, partaking in the pleasures of the world. He would only go into the world to conduct business and things of that nature, but he was so close to God that he was in constant communion with God. And God's last day people will have that same experience. We'll be in this world, um, but we will not be of this world. Um, we won't feel comfortable here. We won't feel like just settling down and saying, yeah, God, if you want to come in 25 years, that's fine with me because I really like it here. Um, we'll want to be with God so much that like Enoch will be translated without seeing death. Verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now notice this, without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, what was one of the first points in this chapter about what faith is? That God is creator. And if you don't have faith that God is creator, it's impossible to please him. So you can create all the elaborate scientific methods that you want, but that's not going to please God. That's going to be like Cain bringing the best of his fruit. Um, you may be showing a lot of human intellect to create some kind of flowchart of evolutionary theory and, and whatever, but it's not pleasing to God. Um, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it says, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. What does it mean when it says he must believe that he is? He is what? He is God and he is creator. So to come to God and say, well, you know, <clears throat> I know the Bible says you created the earth in six literal days and rested the seventh, but I'm not sure if I really believe that. That, does, that means you don't believe that he is creator. And if you don't, that means you don't have faith. And if you don't have faith, that means that you're not pleasing God. So this is an important concept. I mean, we, we can get into the argument of like, what do we go by, science or faith? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. We go with faith. And if you want to go with science, that's your choice. God gives everyone free will to make that choice. We, I'm, not trying, I'm not here to try to force you 
to ha have faith and not believe in science when the scientific record goes against creation. But what I am saying is you can make that choice, but God will not be pleased because that will not be evidence of faith. And you have that choice to reject God, and hopefully, um, I, I would appeal to all of you, hopefully, that you would not make that choice because God has done so much for us. He really has. And in Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to make one final pitch about this whole creation thing. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 20, says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So at the end of the day, we are without excuse to believe in the creation record. It's pretty clear there from Romans. So going back to Hebrews, but notice the second half of verse 6. It says, so for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is creator, and that he is God, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So that's interesting. It says God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And based on what we've studied so far, in what way would we diligently seek God? Okay, so we diligently seek God through his word. Yes, the, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So we diligently seek him through his word. We also diligently seek him as we see he has demonstrated himself to us and to others here in Hebrews 11. And one of the first way that God demonstrates who he is, is as creator. So when we diligently seek God as creator, and that the worlds were framed by his word, and what we understand by that is when we go to Genesis 1, it says, and God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. Which helps us to understand when we get to Matthew chapter 8, when the centurion said, speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Then Jesus said, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Because here was a man who understood in the creative power of God's word. So when we diligently seek God, we're diligently seeking him as God, as our Savior, as our Creator, who can recreate our lives. And what Paul says here is, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him in that respect. How does He reward us? Well, how, how did He reward Abraham, who believed in God as Creator? He counted him as righteous. And if we are counted as righteous, meaning that we have salvation, what greater reward could we ask for? So, <clears throat> he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And of course, you can certainly make the application that <clears throat> in order to <clears throat> have a saving walk with God, we must diligently be seeking God every day. So we must be having, we sh because of our love for God, <clears throat> We diligently seek Him, and we spend significant time with Him. 
he's not 10th place on our list of most important people, or even second place. Um, and for those who are married, that means he's not second place to your spouse. Um, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So moving on, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which was by faith. And again, Noah is told to build an ark for a flood that is coming, and there had never been rain or certainly never a flood. And God tells him to do that, and people are calling Noah a lunatic. He's lost his mind. But yet he moved with fear, and he prepared an ark, notice, to the saving of his house. So because of his faith, his house was saved along with him. And because he acted on God's word and prepared for something that had never been seen, he condemned the world who didn't believe in that which had not been seen. And he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And, you know, people talk about how, well, you know, God's going to have a group of people in which he writes his law into their hearts and minds, and they perfectly reproduce God's character and, and all of that. But, boy, I've, I've never seen that, and I know in my own life that I don't have that experience. So there's just no way that that part of the Bible is true. Well, you know, you can let your human experience <clears throat> come up with that conclusion, but the only problem is that you're going against the Word of God, which is the creative power of God's Word. And it's interesting, if you start to doubt God about the record of creation, inevitably you're going to start to doubt his word in other areas. You'll say, well, the scientific evidence shows this about origins, so therefore Genesis 1 to 11 aren't true. Then you say, and my human experience or the evidence of my human life shows that what the Bible says, for example, Jude 24, now unto him that's able to keep you from falling, I don't have that experience. So therefore, Jude 24 can't be right and you, you just march down a pathway that becomes more and more uncertain in the Word of God. And the safest place to be is to believe in what God says. And sometimes we don't understand everything, but by faith we choose to believe, and when we believe that God is creator, we believe that He can create something out of nothing. He can, create, he can do the impossible. So even though we may seem to have an impossible experience, God can do an amazing thing. And Noah is an example of this has never happened before, but because God says it's going to happen and he's asked me to build an ark, this is what I'm going to do. And because he did that, he saved his house, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And that also shows us the evidence of the importance of spiritual leadership within the home. Because Noah was faithful to God, he saved his family. And there is something important to be said for the spiritual leaders in our homes to do all that we can to make sure our family is saved with us.